Well, good morning, La Plata. Always good to be uh, in the house of the Lord, La Plata Baptist. Uh, you all are so gracious and kind. Um, I love uh, administering the word of God when you invite me, so I can't thank you enough. Our family would love to be here, but as Mark was saying, uh, my wife couldn't be here today because our grandson, we had the pleasure of having him over last night, so she's a little bit worn out. Um, and so she, but she sends her greetings as well. So thank you all, and uh, as well thanking Pastor Garrett um, for having me and your leaders and you as a body. Greetings in the matchless name of Jesus Christ, uh, my Lord and Savior. Uh, it is always thankful that he would call us to preach the word. And uh, today, having uh, this gift of being able to look back into the scriptures as you all are going through Romans, um, how appropriate then to be able to preach on one of the, the, the gleaning passages in the Old Testament uh, coming out of Genesis 15. So if you have your pew Bibles, I'll be coming out of Genesis 15 today, and uh, that'll be on page 11, I believe, on your pew Bibles. So if you uh, would grab that, I will come back to that. But in Mark 4, verses 35 through 41, we are told of the story of Jesus going across the sea with his disciples. And during the time that they traveled over the Galilean Sea, uh, we're told that a storm came about all of a sudden. And that in this storm, it caused the boat to rock back and forth and Meanwhile, the disciples, all fishermen, are very aware of the type of storm that was coming through. It must have been quite the storm because for fishermen that are used to being in the Galilean Sea, they all became like little children, extremely afraid, extremely scared. And so as the sea tossed and took them back and forward, meanwhile, Jesus, who had put them on and said, let's go to the other side, is fast asleep. The winds are raging and everything's going on. The disciples are basically freaking out, and Jesus is asleep. And so in verse 38, they, they wake him and they alert him and they say, Teacher, do you not even care that we're perishing? And in one of the paraphrases that I like, it could be rendered in the sense of, Jesus, we hate to bother you, but if you don't mind, we could, leave, you could, we could use a little bit of your help. Could you get up and do something? We're about to perish. That was their attitude. That was their demeanor. But the good news is Jesus got up. He stilled the storm, and that was the easy part. But he turned to the 12, and he said in verse 40, Why are you afraid? How is it that you have no faith? You see, the question might sound a little harsh, but it was said because the men had forgotten what he had said before they ever got in the boat. Jesus said before entering, Let us go to the other side. You see, he didn't intend for the disciples to go only halfway. 
he meant for them to get to the other side. And once the 12 had heard what Jesus said, it was in the middle of the crisis, even though they heard that, they forgot. Because the circumstances made them doubt the ability for him to fulfill his word. Forgot he probably even said it. And so you might be thinking, I think that Jesus is my foundation. And, and I'm really being in a trial right now. I might be going through a boat-type experience. Things are just unraveling all around me. And I've been wondering whether or not Jesus really knows. Is he awake? Is he going to get me through this? And if you've ever felt that way, I heard the prayers that were just lifted up. Maybe it's someone that's currently been lost, a loved one that we had to bid farewell. They've departed and they've gone to be with the Lord. Maybe it's someone that has betrayed you, someone that you were close to and that you trusted. Maybe it's for the kids determining every day, will I fit in? Is there something there that I can do at school to get more likes and to be better accepted? And so I'm nervous, I'm anxious, and I wonder, does God know how hard it is for me? And if we want to watch the news at any day for 15 minutes, there is a just buffet of traumas and troubles and pains and all kinds of wars and rumors of wars and things that are going on that you can easily pick what thing wants to upset you this day, wondering how is God going to make this work? What is the world going through? Have you ever felt that? And although you may feel unique in that, today's passage helps us understand we're not alone. The patriarch of the Bible, Abraham, felt this way. And today, we see the remarkable way he handled such fear and the anxiety and the unrest. He was asking, does God know what I'm going through? Where is he? Has he forgotten the promises that he made to me? And so what we'll see is that Abraham, known as Abram at this point in chapter 15, came to understand how to overcome fear and doubt in the midst of life's storms. The uncertainty and the painful truths he found two things that I believe will help us today that come from our passage. And those two things that help us overcome fear and doubt in the midst of life's storms and uncertainties that Abraham learned and passed to us. One, it's to place our trust in God. And that will be from verses one through six, if you're taking notes. The second thing that he will teach us will be that we can rest assured in the promises of God. And that will be through verses 7 through 21. So Abraham has simple lessons, but how profound and perhaps even how difficult they are sometimes to follow. And so as you turn to your Bibles, we'll be reading then. Let me read from chapter 15 again page 11 in your pew Bibles, in chapter 15, starting in verse 1, the passage says, 
After these events, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, God, what can you give me? Since I am childless in the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. Abram continued, look, you've given me no offspring. So a slave born in my house will be my heir. Now the word of the Lord came to him. This one will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, look at the sky and count the stars. If you're able to count them, then he said to him, your offspring will be that numerous. Abraham, Abram believed the Lord and he credited to him as righteousness. Let's pause there. This is one of the great passages in all of the Old Testament. It's the study, as we were hearing, even from the passage read from Romans, of Abraham. And we read from starting in chapters 12 all the way to 23 of this great patriarch. Much of what God has set in place to have a people in a place under his rule is inaugurated with Abraham. And so it's God's promise to Abraham that he is to make him a blessing to the nations. Now, a little background on Genesis is that since chapter 12 and verses 1 through 3, it's very centered the, the history of redemption in the Bible. Some say everything before Genesis, chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, leads up to that point. And then after that, everything afterwards fulfills it. So it's a pivotal moment in history, in the history of God's redemptive plan. And it's his promise to make a blessing to the nations that undergirds our Christian proclamation of the gospel to the very ends of the earth. The whole essence of us going out on missions, it's not something optional. The very heart of God's plan for us as his covenant people is to be a blessing to the nations. We were praying as I was hearing the prayers for countries that would preach the gospel and teach the gospels all over the world. And what a greater way, what greater way could we be a blessing to the nations than to introduce them to the one who can save their souls eternally. The ones that can heap upon them the blessings of God. And as we read through Abram's life, we know he has his ups and downs. Abram is not our stellar man. Even though Abram is a good man, what we find is Abram is not a perfect man. In chapter 12, by the end of chapter 12, Abram is giving up his wife to Pharaoh. It's a very low point. And the preceding chapter in verse in chapter 14 Abraham's on a very high note he's freeing his nephew that's been taken captive by the four kings of the Sodom of the Gomorrah uh, region Abraham has a valiant victory and so we see the ups and the lows of Abraham and so we remember but the, he's been walking with the Lord throughout this whole time he was no son, and he has, he has no son. God promised him 
a son and land. In chapter 12, in verses, again, one through three, it says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from the country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In chapter 13, God again affirms what he did in chapter 12 when he says, to your offspring I will give this land. He promises Abram land. He reaffirms it in chapter 13. You will have offspring, you will have land. And he comes here in chapter 15 and we find Abram has no land that he can call his own, and he has no offspring. And we're talking about a 10-year gap in time, and it seems like, where is God? And so the chapter begins with, after these events, after chapter 14's victory, after all that's been going on, and these events, it reminds us that Abram, might have some questions, might be concerned about what God is doing. And he says, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Do not be afraid, Abram. I am your shield and your reward will be very great. See, Abram had turned down the reward from the king of Sodom for having won the victory and the people back. The king of Sodom said, you can have all the bounty. Give me the people. And Abraham said, no, I don't want that. Lest you, make, lest you think you made me great. He gave the credit to, uh, to honor God. And of the high priest, Melchizedek came and blessed Abram. And so Abram gets to this point where he's not taking the reward. And he's, he's seen God. And God comforts him at this point. And he says, essentially, Abram, I've seen you. I've watched you. I'm pleased with you. I will be your reward. Even though you haven't tasted of the war reward that I've promised, I am your shield. And I think God's repeating this again to Abram because he's doing this to strengthen his faith. It's to help him remember, because Abram has to remember that God's the one who brought him out of the land of the Chaldeans, from the land of Ur. And that even though he hasn't seen the specific promise, God has given him an assurance that he will see that day coming. But what I want us to see is that even though God comes to him in a vision, the purpose of the vision is to convey a promise, but more specifically, the word of God. It's to convey the central point of the message, and that is that God gives us himself to calm in the life and the storm. He gives us to be the, the calming in our lives during the midst of the storm, not just a shield, not just a word, but he himself 
is what calms us. And he's, I love the, the NASAB kind of gives a sideline note of the true meaning of what that word when he says, do not fear, he intimates that not only am I your shield, but I am your very great reward. God is the reward. God is the protector, but he's also Abram's reward. F.B. Meyer wrote, to have God is to have all, though deprived of everything. To be destitute of God is to be deprived of everything, though you have all. Donald Barnhouse, Pastor Barnhouse, observes that God's method of supplying our need is to give us fresh knowledge of himself. For every need can be met by seeing him. If you're facing a crisis in your life, look in God's word for a fresh insight into who God is. Abram didn't know God as his shield until when? He was afraid of the retaliation from the king. God knew what was in his heart. We didn't. How do we know he was afraid? Because God said, do not be afraid. So God knew what was in his heart, and God was the one who came to him. He didn't know God was at, as, didn't know him as the great reward until he was worried about would I have enough, and would that be enough to pass down to a posterity? Until the need presented itself, Abram couldn't see it. Maybe today, are you lonely? Friends, look to Christ as our bridegroom, as the lover, as the friend. Maybe I'm depressed. Look to God as the one who knows and who can give us the joy that overcomes that depression. Are you fearful and anxious? He's our refuge. He is our refuge and our peace. Confused and need direction, he's our wisdom and our guide. One reason he allows us to go through trials in our lives is so that we can believe and place our faith in him. And we're going to see it's very important that we get his word, but the word should lead us to the person. He wants us to be with him. Trusting in the Lord, it means that he's precious and his, his promises becomes ours in experience. And Second Peter, Peter helps us understand. He says, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory. He's graciously revealing more of himself to us as we trust in him. We get his word, but as we meet conflict, it's what gives us the power to want to see another day because we don't know what he's going to bring forward that draws us close to him. Do you have that kind of personal trust and a personal God, one who created the universe? Even though he spoke into existence billions of galaxies, just stars, galaxies, but yet he knows 
every hair on your head. And he cares for you. When you're fearful or anxious, you can go personally to the very throne room of God because he cares and he delights. The passages in Matthew 11, he's gentle and lowly. He wants us to come and bring our burdens to him. And so he delights in us coming. Can you tell him your problems and know that he cares for you? It's the personal trust in a personal God. And so we get this revelation that he's graciously revealing more of himself as we trust him in our, in our trials. But it's not just that he's our personal God. Part of the extension of that is also his word. We trust him because God has revealed himself in the words of scripture. While he spoke verbally to Abram, he was revealing himself to us and he reveals himself to us through his inspired word of the Bible. This is the first time in the Bible the phrase, the word of the Lord came to someone. The very essence of who God is. And this, it spoke to Abraham. We'll hear it a lot more when we get to the prophets, the very ones who speak to God. Is, is, is God proclaimed of Moses? No one speaks to me face to face but his friend Moses. So we get this very first instance of Abraham having the ability to speak to God. It occurs and gives us this understanding that knowing God, yes, he wants us personally to know him, but it's not something that we simply have a feeling for. I have a feeling of knowing him. I can literally go to his word and see him reveal himself through the very pages of scripture. The passages that were just read, I am your shield for me. Though many should come after me, the psalmist give great expression of God revealing his personal nature to us, but it comes through the truth of his word. And so he's revealed in, in his word. And the question comes up then, as he revealed himself to Abram, what did he believe? What did Abram believe in verse 6 that it was credited to him as righteousness? We see that he was already called. This wasn't Abraham's first coming. Abraham, as I just read in chapter 12, already answered the call of God. He had already left his land of Ur and the Chaldeans, and he had already began the walk of God. So this is, once again, God and Moses helping us to know that this came to a point where what he believed, God credited to him as righteousness. And so what Abram believed, the New Testament helped shed light on what he believed. And it says in, that as Abraham knew, as that he was the seed, that the blessing would come to all the families of the earth through him. Paul in Galatians helps us understand that the word here for seed is singular. It's not that his seeds and all of those coming from him, but a particular seed would be the blessing that would come and bless the world through Abraham's 
in, in this text, Abram's descendants, but to one of his descendants. And so when Abram believed in the Lord, what he believed specifically was the promise that a savior for the world would come forth from his descendants. In verse 4, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to him, This one, Eliezer of Damascus, will not be your heir. Instead, one who comes from your own body will be your heir. God gave him comfort that it wouldn't be someone else. It literally would be what God said. Your heir would come from your body. Your loins would produce the heir. And through that, the king, the Messiah. How much did he know about Jesus? Again, Paul tells us, John gives us a great emphasis of what Abraham knew in John 8, 56. It says when Jesus was confronted about the, with the Pharisees, what did Jesus say about Abraham? He said, Abraham, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Paul says in, in Galatians um, 3, verse 8, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall the nations be blessed. That the gospel was preached to Abraham beforehand. Though he didn't know Jesus' name, he understood that God would bring a redeemer through him and that we had this as he understood that, God reckoned it to him as righteousness. It's that kind of personal trust in his promises that brings us to be able to put the Christian life of learning how to walk with God and how to serve him based off the promise of his word that we place our faith in him. And so when we look at this word for faith and we look at what Abraham did, we find that faith is the channel by which God's grace comes. Everybody has faith. So the issue isn't whether you have faith. Atheists have faith. All religions have faith. The question is, what is the object of their faith? And I love what one pastor helped understand. So we get an idea of well, what then is the importance of faith and how does it relate to God's grace and his righteousness? And he says, well, faith, if it's the channel, he says, if you think of it like this, it's helpful. Faith is not the drink. Faith is the straw. Faith is the straw in the drink by which the water comes into your mouth and satisfies your thirst. In other words, faith is the instrument by which you are made righteous. It's through faith that God imparts, or in this case, imputes your righteousness. And so it's the object of the faith that matters. For us as Christians, we have the faith in the unique object of Jesus Christ. 
Christ our Lord. Our faith is in God, the Bible, the person of God that links us to his promises and joins us to him who then counts us, reckons us, considers us righteous. Not off the works that we have done, because as I said, it wasn't because of the sinlessness of Abram, but because of God's righteousness that was given to him. By faith, he was credited as being right. So when Abram believed God, God credited to him, and he was justified, made right before God. This is one of the most important doctrines of the Bible, that God declares righteous the guilty sinners who trust in Christ. It's the very core of the gospel, that it's not based off of the works we do, but off the pure gift, grace, love, mercy of God. And through his imputed, through his accounting term, through his giving and crediting to your account, Christ's righteousness, he cloaks us in a robe of clean rightness. And that's what it means to have imputed righteousness. It's as if justified, I love that kind of saying, it's just as if I had never sinned. He gives us that in righteousness. And Paul spells it out as we were reading in Romans 3 and 4. The verse means that God declares righteous the guilty sinner when that sinner no longer trusts in his own good works, but rather when he trusts the perfect obedience and the substitutionary death of the Lord Jesus Christ on his behalf. Romans 4, as we read, or prior to our reading, it says, Now to the one who works, his wages is not reckoned as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. Praise be to God. It forces us to ask the question, have we exercised faith and a saving faith in God? Have we trusted in him like that for our salvation? Have we trusted Christ who says he is and that the promises of salvation are what he says they are? Have we rested in him and in him alone? Friends, that is the amazing grace and the tremendous gift and the astounding feature of this passage and of the act that God did to Abraham, but as we'll see, even much more to the just Abraham. But if we're listening to Abraham in ways in which when we get into those turmoil and those times where we're doubting whether God is doing, seeing, acting according to what we believe he should, we know that not only can we trust in God, we need to trust him, as simple as it sounds, but trusting and having faith and putting all of our hope in him. But we also need to rest then assured that in his promises that God will keep or rest, point two, rest assured in the promises of God. 
And in verse 7 through 21, let me continue. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, Lord, God, how can I know that I will possess it? He said to him, bring me a three-year-old cow, a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. So he brought all these to him, cut them in half, and laid the pieces opposite each other. But he did not cut the birds in half. Birds of prey came down on the carcass, carcasses, but Abram drove them away. As the sun was setting, a deep sleep came over Abram, and suddenly great terror and darkness descended on him. Then the Lord said to Abram, know this for certain, your offspring will be resident aliens for 400 years in a land that does not belong to them and will be enslaved and oppressed. However, I will judge the nation they serve and afterward they will go out with many possessions, but you will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. When the sun had set and it was dark, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch appeared and passed between the divided animals. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, I give this land to your offspring from the brook of Egypt to the great river, the Euphrates River. The land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, Hittites or Hevites, the Perizzites, the Rephaim, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and the Jebusites. Amen. So in the first part of the chapter, we see that God had reiterated his covenant and his commitment to bring uh, Abram a son, an offspring. And that he confirmed that with the sign, look to the skies and the stars, if you're able to number them. It was a reminder of God's promise. But here, God now confirms his covenant with a blood sign. God speaks in verse 7 again, I am the Lord who brought you from the Ur of the Chaldeans to give you land to possess. And that phrase is designed to strengthen Abram's faith. What's his respond again? It's a question. Lord, how can I know that I'll possess it? And so again, God is not intimidated, is not offended by the earnest, the sincere request of his children to know, God, how do I know this? God answers. As soon as he brought forth the heart and promise of an heir, God makes another word, and he says another word designed to strengthen Abram's faith. And so when he cries out, God responds in perhaps one of the shocking ways. He says, God, how will I know? And immediately God says, okay, start bringing some animals and cut them up. And you got to think, Abram's like, what? How is this answering my question that I just, I just want to know how will I know this? But what he realizes, okay, there's a sacrifice that's about to be made, but he doesn't perhaps maybe understand what yet is going on. So Abram's response is a great lesson for us. 
Did he stall? Did he sit there and bicker with God? But what does it say? Abraham did as he said. Lord said, go bring these things. In verse 10, immediately, so he brought all of these to him. Abram trusted him enough, he obeyed. And so he obeyed what the Lord said in preparing the sacrifices. And he still doesn't know what's going on yet, but what's about to happen is a covenant is about to be made between God and Abram. But that covenant, as we call the Abrahamic covenant, is going to be an everlasting covenant between God and those descendants of Abraham. And so we're going to see the essence of this covenant because it's going to be based off of the land and his offspring. And God now says, while us trying to get an understanding of then what is it about this covenant that we need to understand, we need to understand a little bit about the history of this type of covenant making. While Abram was in a deep sleep, God, showing himself through the flaming torch and the smoking oven, he passes between the pieces, indicating his very presence in the wilderness, um, similar to the same passage. Because who's the first audience? Who's getting this? First audience of Genesis are the children of Israel that Moses is reciting that just came out of Egypt and are needing to understand, and the, the, the passages they're reading this, they're also experiencing the very same God. And so the understanding then that God is resembling the very covenant or the very presence of fire and the, the smoke and fire is very reminiscent of what God is revealing himself to them through the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night indicating God's presence with them throughout the wilderness. We get this already in this um, uh, covenant. So God was establishing the covenant with an oath, an agreement on the commitment part for uh, Abram. And it was unusual because Abram was the recipient, but he wasn't a participant in the covenant. He was simply a spectator. This was a covenant of God's promise alone, and its fulfillment depended on God alone. God was assuming sole responsibility in the covenant. And so when the Lord made a covenant, we think of a covenant as a contract. It's a treaty, a ritual agreement. And this one was unilateral. That meant only one party had responsibility by nature, a contract generally has two parties that have to commit, but this one was one. Abram was asleep, and God, through the vision, was showing him what was going on, and so it was only one party that was being committed to this bond who had responsibility for the carrying out of this, and that was God. And so it formally binds the two parties and the mutual commitment with consequences for keeping or breaking the covenant. Here God was making a covenant of promise with Abraham, Abram, and the ceremony was to help Abram realize that
that the promise of the seed in the land depended on God, not Abram. In the ancient world, sacrifices also and many times accompanied the gestures when you get the splitting of the animals and the in-between where the blood flowed. It was to say that as we go through this as covenant holders, may what happened to these animals as consequence happen to any one of the two that breaks this agreement. It was a blood oath. It was a binding contract. There were things, as some would say, there was literally skin in the game. It wasn't just a simple buy or a simple byproduct of, I think I'll do this, I'll do that. There was extreme gravity and weight. And so when God makes this covenant, what God was saying is that if this should be broken, may what happen to this animal, may it be a curse on him if he does not and if he fails to the promises that he just made with Abram. If he does not give him the land and if he does not give him the offspring, he solidifies it with his word of promise and says, may this happen to me if I do not uphold this covenant. Peter helps us understand that his divine power has granted to us all things in 2 Peter chapter 1 in verses 3 through 5 he says his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence by which he has granted to us precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of his divine nature. We trust God We trust God, and so we have put our faith in him to carry out the very things that we could not do. And so when Abram gives him this covenant and this oath that he is to live by, we see then that God is helping Abram at the same time understand the weight of what has just happened. And so he gives him to your descendants, I have given this land, I have promised with a covenant that these things and this message will be clear to Abram and that he will take this on and Abram will have confidence that God will be the one to carry this out. His clear message to Abram was that despite any prospects of death or suffering in Egypt, that his descendants, though the prophecy would be that his descendants would go into Egypt, they would suffer. They would be servants. But in the end, God would be working that out to save them and to bring them into land that he had promised them. And by them hearing this, what does it do for their faith? 
It bolsters the faith because it says he prophesied to this 400 years earlier and it's happening right now. The same way it's to bolster our faith and put whatever God says he will do, he will honor his commitments and his promise. God's clear message is that the descendants would eventually receive the promise and that the oath that he swore to them, God would fulfill. In Hebrews, it helps us understand in Hebrews 6 that when he made that to Abraham, he swore to himself because there was nothing higher, no one higher by which he could swear to, so he swore by himself that he would see through this promise. Nothing can separate God's people from his love or his fulfillment of his plans, even though the actual possession of the land would not be for 400 years, Abram had confidence that God would do what he said he would. Friends, if we realize this, this is shocking. I want us to really understand and conclude on this. God has given us a message today that for the sovereign Lord to assume the position of the servant in this covenant. Because Abram should have been the one making the commitment to uphold this, but he knew Abram couldn't keep it. He's a sinful man. So he makes the covenant on himself, one who can keep it. And for the sake of the assurance of his people, he makes this one-sided covenant. And that assurance is not just for Abram, it's for us. Who then are the heirs of the precious and very great promises made to Abraham and to his seed? You are. We are. Those who have placed their trust in Christ. Your sins are the ones forgiven. God is for you with all his power and goodness and mercy. He will pursue you all your life. And you will rise from the dead. It's your name that he makes these promises because of the covenant that he made with Abram and that has been ratified in his son, Jesus. The enemies that will be held at the gates and not prevail are because God has made a covenant with those who have placed their faith in Christ and that we will find that the new earth with the knowledge of God and the glory of the Lord is ours. All of those promises of yes and amen are those to us, the children of Abraham, through faith in Christ. For all things are yours, whether the world, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, whether the world, the life or death, the present or the future, all promises are yours, for you are Christ, and Christ, the seed of Abraham, is God's. How do we know this? Because on the night in which Jesus was betrayed, the Lord Jesus said to his disciples in Luke 22, this cup, which is poured out for you, is the new covenant in my blood. 
Now Jesus is saying that this cup fulfills the promise that God made to us in Jeremiah 31 with the new covenant that the spirit would be poured out on his people and that the Gentiles would receive salvation as they place faith. The true children of Abraham, those of faith, not of works, that they would receive the promises. Jesus saying, I long ago with the father, God, my father said to Abraham, I promise unto death, I am here to pay the price. Not only that you would be redeemed from your sins, but that you could know that there is no power in all the earth, all the universe that can prevent you from receiving the blessings that God had promised to you. Why? Because I have sealed these promises with my blood. How do I know? Because I can look to the cross. Who hangs there? God's own son. Not animals or the blood of bulls, but God's own son. Slaughtered in the sacrifice of the covenant so that we might be assured of the promises of God. Amen? Let us pray. Gracious Lord, we thank you once again for your beautiful word. We thank you for your promises that, Lord, we can trust in you. We can trust you because, Lord, you draw near to the weary. You draw near to those who are meek and those who, Lord, seek you for salvation. I pray that anyone here who does not know you, Lord, would not leave not calling upon you as a great sacrifice, having died for the sins of all, so that anyone who places their faith in you, that you would take away their sin, nailing it to the cross, and that in place of that, Father, knowing that the cross could not hold you, but on the third day you rose from the grave, and rule and reign now from heaven, having ascended to the right hand in the throne of God, that those who believe in this, Father, can have the hope and the assurance of the covenant that you have given us in your blood. I pray that we all hear that. We all know that. We rely upon you in our times of weakness so that we remember that. We thank you and we love you. For it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.